Okay, Fixplasm episode 105, Dune by Frank Herbert. So, um, recently I've not been able to stop thinking about Dune. Uh, social media is partly responsible, I guess, for, you know, hyping up the Dennis Villeneuve film. Um, but my heart has always been in the David Lynch film, which I saw years before I even read the book. Uh, I think we even had some of the toys. I'm pretty sure my brother had a sandworm. Anyway, there have been three adaptations... And I will talk about them in the media section. But, you know, I'm I'm always about going back to the original source. And I'm on my third read-through of June, and I'm being reminded of just how much good stuff there is that just isn't in any of the screen versions. It's going to be kind of difficult for me to be properly objective, but I'm going to try very hard to focus on the content of the first novel. Um, I'm not interested in diving into the fandom, which is, you know, vast and freely available online. I think there is a temptation sometimes to overanalyze the world building in Dune, uh, which is a distraction from the art plot, which is really good and intricate. If anything, um, I think that doing what I've recently done, which was immersing myself in the three different screen versions, kind of helps to separate the style from the substance. Um, so anyway, I'm going to follow the regular format, but I want to pay particular attention to the details in the book especially those which are de-emphasised or absent from the adaptations, and these will be particularly important when considering the genre influences of Dune and other role-playing remarks. And of course, I'll, I'll finish by covering other media. So, here we go. So let's just dive into the synopsis, and um, to efficiently summarise the plot, I guess we should start with the setting, which is a human galactic imperium in the year 10191. The Imperium is organised into the great houses of the Landstrad, which are basically feudal baronies or ruling clans of a planet or a system, uh, and these are overseen by the Imperium under the rule of class distinction known as the uh, Faufreluches. Um, there's a really handy set of appendices in the back of this book, by the way. So the Faufreluches uh, determine the place of all people. Um, now, these, these two factions, the Imperium and the Landsrad, together with the Spacing Guild, define the Great Convention, which is kind of a, a truce that declares, um, uh, for example, that no one is permitted to use atomic weapons in warfare on plane of planetary obliteration. Um, and there's, there's another rule of the Great Convention, which is the Dictum Familia, which prohibits the slaying of a house member or royal by informal treachery, in quotes. The Spacing Guild is in a position to enforce the rules because it totally controls all interstellar travel for its highliners, and its navigators are a closely guarded secret. Now, they're obviously essential for commerce, the Chome Company is also a factor here. That's a, a universal development company whose directors are the Emperor and Great Houses with the Guild and the Bene Gesserit as silent partners. Now, so far, this setup is largely political and commercial. But the other side of it is the Bene Gesserit who have their plans measured in centuries and have manipulated bloodlines to um, steer mankind's evolution for generations with selective breeding. And they're often referred to as witches and their powers seem fantastic, although they have a wholly scientific explanation. Um, their training allows total control over their own bodies from their nervous system and musculature, which makes them appear superhuman. Um, to vocal control with commands using the voice. 
the awareness of intents and motives and generally reading people, which looks a bit like telepathy, but it isn't. And in the case of Reverend Mothers, they can successfully alter chemistries by visualising and editing molecular structures um, and also contacting the genetic memories of ancestors in their own cells. And both the Guild and the Bene Gesserit have a line of sight that extends into the past and the future. And both are using this sight to achieve their ends, whether that's navigating space or controlling human genetic destiny. However, the Bene Gesserit's vision isn't perfect. And um, for 90 or so generations, they've been trying to produce the Kizatz Haderach, the male counterpart to the all-female Bene Gesserit sisterhood, who is able to... Um, go into that inner place that the Bene Gesserit's vision cannot penetrate and thus anticipate the future path of humanity uh, completely. And critically, all of this prescient power of the Guild and the Bene Gesserit rel relies on the Spice Melange, which you can only obtain on Arrakis, which makes it the most important planet in the universe. So the story starts out as a political plot. And spice production on Arrakis has been under House Harkonnen control for about 80 years, which has made the Harkonnens very wealthy. And then, all of a sudden, the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV gives this over to House Atreides as the new fief holders of Arrakis. The motives behind this are that Duke Leto Atreides is gaining power and popularity among the, um, the houses of the Landsrad, and the Emperor is concerned that House Atreides could be a threat to the throne. They also suggest that House Atreides has been training fighters who could be the equal of the Emperor's own Sardaukar troops. So the Atreides also have a generations-old feud with the Harkonnens. And Baron Harkonnen's plan is to use a traitor in the Atreides household to cripple the house before launching a counterattack to retake Arrakis. The Emperor is secretly supporting the Baron with his own Sardaukar troops, who are these you know, spectacularly strong fighters bred on this hellish prison planet called Seleucus Secundus. And neither of these facts can be allowed to get out, of course, because these would be violations of the Great Convention. The truce would fall apart and the Landsrad would probably turn on the Emperor. So in the first act, which is titled Dune, we have the taking over of Arrakis by Duke Leto and his house, then the subsequent betrayal, and finally Paul and his mother Jessica fleeing into the desert. And the action begins on their homeworld Caladan, which by contrast with Arrakis is largely water and frequently rainy. And Paul Atreides, who is our main protagonist, is 15 years old, and he's been trained by Jessica with the Bene Gesserit training. So he is um, precocious, mentally astute, he can use the voice a bit. Uh, he's also naturally curious, and he's an excellent fighter, having been trained by some of the finest uh, in, in the Atreides ranks, as um, Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck. So the house is visited by a reverend mother of the Bene Gesserit to subject Paul to a lethal test, which is normally applied only to um, members of the sisterhood, or applicant members of the sisterhood. What he does is he puts his hand in a pain-inducing box and is told not to remove it on pain of being stabbed with a poison needle, uh, the Gomjabar. And this is a really important scene because it establishes the Bene Gesserit's modus operandi. Now, to quote the Reverend Mother, they sift people to find humans. They have this view that humans have the capacity to set themselves aside from their animal instincts, which is the whole purpose of the trial with the box. Um, 
if you can control your pain and keep your hand in the box, then you're a human who can master your, your base instincts. If you withdraw it, then you're an animal and uh, are only fit to be slain by the Gonjabar. And this, coupled with their selective breeding program, points to their true attitude, which is that most people are animals ruled by base instincts and they're to be manipulated. And their goal is the evolution of the human state and heightened awareness. Um, the Reverend Mother also scolds Jessica for producing a male instead of a female child with the Duke, which would have suited their goals much better because then they could have wed the female Atreides to a male Arconan heir and sealed the breach between the houses. Now, onto Arrakis then, and there is a good deal of the book before the eventual betrayal and downfall of House Atreides, where we learn a lot about the culture, you know, mostly through Paul and Jessica as point of view characters. Paul has already been having prescient dreams, and these only get more intense on Arrakis when he's exposed to the spice. These eventually become waking dreams. This is balanced by the political situation and the plot of Duke Leto to ally with the Fremen, who he calls Desert Power, and thinks they're essential to getting full control of Arrakis. Um, and he also estimates them to exist in far greater numbers than the Imperial Census suggests, and also he reckons being raised on the desert planet will make them maybe even tougher than the Sardaukar troops, which, which they actually are. Now, Paul is very alert to everything around him, and he is, as I said, curious, and he wonders who is a Fremen. He takes in the sights and the scents and the customs. He he realises how the spice saturates everything. Um, he witnesses when a sandworm destroys a sand crawler and, and so on. Now, all of this has the sense of a colonising force trying to understand and negotiate with the natives and mostly getting it right, but also dealing with the legacy of Harkonnen oppression that they suffered for uh, about 80 years. They also interact with a number of off-worlders with local interests, including um, guild representatives, smugglers, uh, water carriers or water sellers or water bankers uh, and so on. Um, and like it or not, the Atreides are part of this colonial upper class. Now, there's also the matter of the traitor, and this is something that isn't in any of the screen adaptations, which is a bit of a shame. The Fear Howard, the Atreides mentat and master of assassins, suspects a traitor and specifically suspects Jessica. There's a very exciting scene in the book between Jessica and Thufir where he suspects her and he comes close to killing her when they have a one-to-one -one discussion. And she, in turn, explains the broader truth of what the Bene Gesserit actually are and what their goals are. She demonstrates some of her power with the voice on him. Um, and it's clear that this is something that Thufir has no experience of, which is kind of interesting about how secret that is. Um, and this is important not only for the way that everyone's internal thought processes are written on the page for the reader, but it's also important because this is actually part of the Baron's strategy, which is to overwhelm Thufir with suspicion and occupy his mentat mental cycles so he's not effective at securing House Atreides from the coup when it actually happens. The actual traitor is Dr. Yui, who has been conditioned by the Imperial Souk School, but who nonetheless has overcome this conditioning to um, sabotage the house generators, drug Paul and Jessica, paralyze Duke Leto so he can be served up to the Baron in exchange for his wife. And he does attempt to also get back at the Baron by giving Leto a concealed poison gas tooth, 
um, but this only manages to take out the Baron's Mentat Piter. Paul and Jessica are disposed of in the desert, uh, the plan being that a worm will destroy all trace of their bodies. And deniability of the Baron's actions is an important part of the plot. Now, he has to be able to tell an Imperial truthsayer that, oh, I didn't kill Paul and Jessica. Quite a lot of these scenes are intercut as well between the Baron and his nephews Raban, who oversees spice production, and Fade Ratha, who is his preferred heir. But anyway, Paul and Jessica manage to escape their bonds before they're dispatched by the Harkonnens, uh, but they wind up being stranded in the desert nonetheless, along with still suits and a still tent so they can survive, but they're still stranded. So in the second act, which is called Mwadib, uh, Paul and Jessica join forces with the Fremen tribe from Siege Tabar. They go through a number of trials to become accepted. Initially, they want to take Paul, but as far as Jessica is concerned, they plan to just you know, render her down for her body's water in nothing personal. Um, but she proves her value by overcoming Stilgar, their leader, who refers to her martial abilities as her weirding way. Now, I, um, I'm 99% certain that in the book, weirding is only a descriptor used by Fremen, and she would probably refer to her prana bindo training, which is her complete control over nerve and muscle. Um, but then weirding becomes something that the Atreides own in Lynch's film with the weirding modules, which are actually a kind of technology uh, with a projectile weapon involving sound. Anyway, um... Paul has his own trials, particularly with one Fremen called Jamis, who he kills in single combat, uh, which is something that has a profound effect on him as it's his first kill. And he sheds tears over the killing, which is uh, you know, remarked upon in, because in Fremen society, it's a waste of the body's water. So it's therefore a very valuable gift to the dead. And um, there are several other events in Paul's metamorphosis from outsider to full member of the Fremen tribe. And these indicate the prophecy of the Lisan al-Gaib, or the voice from the outer world, who is, according to Fremen myth, expected to eventually lead the tribes in a galactic jihad. And Paul has more waking dreams and sees multiple paths, some of which include his own death, and the horrifying vision of this jihad in his name, and the name of House Atreides, which subjugates hundreds of planets and kills millions of people. Now, whilst this is going on, we learn a bit more of the other political plot, in particular the machinations on Gedi Prime, the Harkonnen homeworld, and the moves the Baron makes to prepare Fade to inherit. The right hand of the Emperor Count Fenring and his Countess, or no, sorry, Lady Fenring, uh, they're entertained by the Baron, and then the Count uses this time to communicate the Emperor's plans and directions by um, back channel, so to speak. And, and this shows the reader that whilst the Baron is shrewd and ambitious, he's also being used by the Emperor and has his own vulnerabilities. Now, bear in mind, we've not seen the Emperor so far, just the Sardaukar troops, and now his proxy in Count Fenring. And another interesting point comes out of this exchange, and that's the Count and Lady Fenring's observation of Fade Rauther and his comparison to Paul. Lady Fenrig thinks, oh my god, is this the bloodline that we're supposed to preserve? Um, so they compare him to Paul, saying that um, had Fade been raised with the Atreides traditions and sensibilities, he might well have turned out not unlike Paul. Um, so we have these themes of nature, i.e. genetic determinism, and nurture, and it also shows how Fenring 
like the Bene Gesserit, has a more holistic view of the whole plan going forward. Now, these are high-level players, and they're betting on multiple bloodlines. Anyway, back to the desert. Um, This second act concludes with Jessica taking the water of life, which is the toxic water from a drowned small sandworm, uh, a little maker, as they say. And she successfully transmutes it into a non-lethal drug and gains awareness of her genetic heritage, as well as the awareness of the tribe's outgoing reverend mother. Um, But this also affects her unborn daughter, Alia, meaning that she's born with all of the experience of a reverend mother herself. And this condition, I think, is called pre-born in the canon. Um, It's also referred to as an abomination by the Bene Gesserit, and it becomes an important part in the sequels. Anyway, in the third and final act, Paul establishes himself as the Messiah. He rides the sandworm. He takes the water of life, which, you know, any man who's tried to do that before has died from the ordeal. Um, But he survives and he establishes himself as the Kizatz Hadarak, the Messiah, able to look into the past and future in ways that are not available to the Bene Gesserit. Then he leads the Fremen to take back the city of Arakeen, where the Emperor and um, several great houses have landed with the guild representatives and the Bene Gesserit. Um, and at this stage, Mwadi, that's a, the name that um, he took when he joined the tribe. Uh, it's, uh, Mwadi is the name of a desert mouse. Um, he's known as a revolutionary leader among the Fremen to these outsiders. Um, and has organised them to destroy Harkonnen spice production. But no one outside the Fremen have any idea he's also the Duke's heir. So what he does is he blows up the mountain wall that, that protects Arakeen with the family atomics, uh, which is a, you know, there is some question about whether that is a violation of the Great Convention, but um, it's kind of brushed aside. And then the Fremen all ride in on sandworms and take the city back, and he faces down the Emperor. His sister, Alia, kills the Baron with a Gomjabar. Um, it's also established, by the way, early on, that the Baron is actually the father of Jessica, uh, although Jessica is, is not aware of this. And therefore, there is there's Harkonnen blood in Paul and in Alia. And this becomes, again, important in the sequels. But for now, Paul issues an ultimatum to the Emperor, Guild and Bene Gesserit, he says he'll marry the Emperor's daughter Irulan and take the throne, keeping Chani as his concubine and mother to his children. He does this by threat of destroying all spice production on Arrakis by using the water of life to um, transmute a pre-spice mass, which would set off a chain reaction, killing worms and destroying the means to make spice. Now, it sounds like a difficult threat to make stick as a deterrent, but The people he's dealing with are all prescient themselves, and they can see a possible future with no more spice, and therefore their precondition just comes to a dead stop. So whilst the non-awakened characters can easily say, oh, you wouldn't dare, it's just a bluff, the guild are totally convinced uh, that it's a real threat. And it's their control of the situation that forces the emperor to submit, step down, and subsequently Paul becomes the emperor. And that is pretty much the story arc. There is a notable showdown between Fader Arthur and Paul at the end of the book, which I've always been two minds about in the the film, but it's really interesting in the book because while Paul is fighting for his life in that final few pages, he loses all sense of the future after the end of the fight because he's not certain he's going to survive. 
Um, you know, in other words, Herbert has used this to underline the life or death nature of this final duel. And another interesting thing that comes out is how Count Fenring was almost Paul. You know, he's been bred and trained very much like Paul, but he's a genetic eunuch, and it's this flaw that means he's not quite up to becoming the Kwisatz Haderach himself. Now, I just want to pick out a couple of other details in the book, because they're notable for being in the text and not having made it to the screen. And the first is about Dr. Kynes, who I've not mentioned previously. He's an imperial planetologist, and he's really important for the big picture of the Dunicology. Now, Kynes appears in the first act and takes Paul and the Duke out to look at spice production. Uh, and at that point, Paul asks him if he's a Fremen, and he replies that, oh, I, I'm accepted in both the Fremen siege and the town. But there's a lot more. He's the father of Chani, who becomes Paul's life partner, and he's a Fremen leader. But being a planetologist, he's the one who's inspired the Fremen that the surface of Arrakis could be transformed into a paradise. And he's captured by the Harkonnens in the second act, and then dropped in the desert without a still suit, and in the end, killed because he's lying on top of a pre-spice mass, which is this half-animal, half-vegetable growth from the um, the excretions of sandworms, which produces gas and then comes to the surface in a spice blow. But as he's dying, he hears the voice of his father talking about the science of transforming the planet's ecology from desert to something that's green and self-sustaining. And the magic figure is 3% of the surface. If you can get plants to take on 3% of the surface, then in time they will spread and transform the entire planet. And this is something which I don't think is properly touched in any of the screen adaptations. The closest that comes to it is the mostly uh, faithful sci-fi series from 2000, but it doesn't really talk too much about the ambitions of the Fremen to transform Arrakis, which is a generational aspiration that you can compare with the Bene Gesserit aspirations to steer humanity's genetic traits over generations. Uh, speaking of the Bene Gesserit, the second detail is how the Sisterhood has not only tried to determine humanity's genetic fate, but also the actions it's taken to open up paths to ensure their selected bloodlines survive. One way they manipulate social conditions is by seeding the same religious concepts throughout human societies, which reinforce the prophecies which they then seek to bring about. And this is actually on screen in Denis Villeneuve's adaptation, where Jessica notes that the local superstition in Arrakis indicates that the Sisterhood have prepared the way on Arrakis already. And another hint of aid is when Jessica finds a conservatory in the palace on Arrakis full of wet wild plants. This is in the book. Um, and she wonders if Leto has made this a uh, gift in secret. And in the book, it's actually... It has to be accessed through an airlock, but Leto has nothing to do with it. It's actually a gift from none other than Lady Fenring, who is another Bene Gesserit. Lady Fenring has written a cover note that contains a Bene Gesserit trigger phase that indicates there's a hidden message somewhere, which she then finds in coded dots like, um, like Braille, I guess, on the underside of a leaf. And this warns her of a Harkonnen plot to kill Paul by putting traps in his bedroom. Now, none of the screen adaptations have this detail in it, and there are several allusions to the coded languages used within factions, like um, Simplest's battle language, or the, the hand signals that Jessica uses in the most recent film. And that leads me to the third and final item, which is the inner monologues of all characters. Now, this is done for Paul, Jessica, the Duke, um, 
The Fehowet, the Baron, Fade, Reverend Mother, Shannon Mapes, who's the housekeeper. And, you know, narrating voices can really kill the atmosphere, for example, in Blade Runner. Um, but here, I really think that they add to the texture of the story. Also, there's a division between the people Herbert has given internal voices to and those he hasn't. Now, I'm not sure what to make of that. Now, the Baron has an internal voice. The Emperor doesn't, I don't think. Um, Fate does. Raban doesn't. Now, we, we know about the whole human-animal dichotomy of the Bene Gesserit, and that's all about self-awareness and control. But I think it's probably more that just some of these characters, these are the ones that are matter and are being brought to the surface as our point-of-view characters. Anyway, these internal deliberations of all the characters, I think they're almost essential to the deeper plot. You know, so much of the story is about perception and second and third intentions, or to quote the text, faints within faints within faints. So everyone is cautious, everyone second guesses, no one is confident of their position. And in this far future where people can be killed really easily in all manner of ways, and so much is invested in high-born genetics as breeding stock, it's clear the people who survive will be acutely aware of danger at all times. There's also the habit of training people for specific roles from almost birth, uh, and that goes for Mentats, Bene Gesserit, Sardaukar, and even the Fremen. I'm, I mean, the Fremen in some ways have been manipulated by the myths, but they're still hyper-aware of their own mortality. You know, they measure everything against the weight of water. And as far as we know, they haven't been manipulated into this state, so the Fremen are, like Paul, a fluke and something unexpected. But anyway, in summary, um, everyone is tense, everyone is serious, and everyone is looking for meaning in tiny details all the time. And this device of multiple inner voices is really effective. So it's not the same as Blade Runner with a single narrator engaging with the audience to provide the plot arc and fill in little gaps. Um, it puts us right there in the room with that character and the stress that they're feeling. Okay, there are other scenes and elements which I may come back to in the media section, but I guess I should start pulling this together to talk about games. And the first thing I want to talk about is the transhuman genre. Um, so if we're starting at high level, this is a humanocentric setting, so all cultural variations are outgrowths of human civilization. Um, I think it's best described as a diaspora. Uh, you can contrast this with a number of other space opera staples. So you have, you know, your Star Trek and your Babylon 5 features multiple alien races and civilizations and the struggle to mediate between them. Then you have something like Blake 7, which is also a human-centric setting, but it only extends as far as our galaxy. And there are other civilizations outside. That's the, the basis of the end of the second series. Uh, then you've also got the Battlestar Galactica series, which, you know, it has a space-faring human society, but that's supposedly been placed by ancients from some distant cradle of humanity. And that's also the, the basis for the humanity races in Traveller, which are the Solomani, Zodani and Villani. Um, the suggestion is that they have all been placed by ancients in other star systems, um, you know, millions of years ago, or hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, but there are also other alien races in that setting. So, yeah, I, th I think June's best described as a, a diaspora. But it's also a transhuman genre, possibly post-human society, with very deliberate transformation of humans into something greater for specific purposes. 
Now, some of these purposes are a response to the Butlerian Jihad, which led to the maxim from the Orange Catholic Bible that you may not construct a machine that contains the semblance of a human mind. So, hence, mentats were created to replace thinking machines for computation. And I guess navigators replaced any artificial intelligences they were being used for folding space. Other transhumans are more to do with ideology, you know, like the Bene Gesserit's plans. And I think this is possibly the most important point here. When you have the Bene Gesserit sisterhood directing the genetic fate of mankind and deciding who is human and who is animal, you create prejudice. Now, the Bene Gesserit's prejudice is, is completely rationalised, but still kind of supremacists. You know, they, they have their own terms, um, but they still other the people who don't meet their criteria. Uh, they, they, they phrase this as consciousness by choice, and they declare their aims as a uh, thread of continuity in human affairs. Arguably, it's not been completely effective as well, um, because environmental pressures on the likes of the Fremen have seen them surpass other humans. Um, and of course, the Fremen are still affected by the Bene Gesserit's propaganda that's sown the monomyth amongst cultures. And there is also the whole white saviour colonial narrative that you, you shouldn't ignore. Um, I like to think that at least Paul and Jessica are unlearning ingrained prejudices that they might have picked up. But I think you're going to have this supremacist attitude somewhere if you have a transhuman population where only a select few are being elevated. It is complicated in some ways because you have some of these transformed humans being considered property, mendats in particular. Um, anyway, um, one last point, I guess, is that transhuman SF is often conflated with post-scarcity SF, and, and here it's clearly not. You, know, you have a feudal society preoccupied with wealth and territory and manipulations behind the scenes to ensure that the spice flows. I was trying to think of another example of transhuman and humanocentric diaspora with a rigidly enforced caste. And it's a much smaller scale, but I think the TV series Killjoys possibly fits this as well. It's well since I've watched that. So then related to this transhuman theme is the theme of not only inherited traits, but inherited memory. And it's made very clear that this is not psionics, it's not telepathy when Alia contacts the mind of the Reverend Mother, rather it's a sympathetic connection through shared genetic memory. This uh, consciousness by choice maxim extends to actual awareness of the aspects of one's own heritage and timeline. And to external observers, this looks like magic, but the book takes pains to explain that it's not. It's about supreme awareness and physical control. Of course, in game terms, this doesn't really matter. I mean, PCs are mostly defined by the results they can achieve, rather than the definitions of how they achieve it. Um, and I don't know how this is defined in the various Dunes RPGs, but it's fair to say it's likely to be interpreted as magic by most players. Now, the critical thing about powers is that you have them, other people don't, and that kind of forms the self-image of the PC. That said, I have looked into the Modifius Quick Start for their Dune game, and I can't see much mention of supernatural abilities. They're mostly embedded as traits. And I think that's right. You, know, you de-emphasize them as special powers when you just list them very loosely as talents to be negotiated at the table. And that kind of puts everyone on a more even footing regarding how you engage with the system. 
All right, a um, couple of other notes moving on. Um, okay, sandworms. The other major topic is the whole ecology of Dune, and I think Dune is described as the first eco-SF novel by some people. And the screen versions only scratch the surface with the relationship between the sandworms and the spice, which, you know, this is a minor spoiler, um, but it's formed from the excretions of little makers when these are brought to the surface in a spice blow from a pre-spice mass. But as I said earlier, the whole ecosystem is in focus here with the Fremen plans to transform Arrakis and Paul's threats to destroy the spice. Now, Arrakis is, is a puzzle planet. It's like Sherry Astepa's grass, as in there is a single ecological secret at the heart of everything. And the cool thing about puzzle planets is the sense of mystery, but that's also the problem because as soon as you know the secret, it, it loses some of the gloss. Also, um, I think marrying these two themes and plot elements together, by, by which I mean the, the political machinations and the ecological investigation, is going to be a challenge. You know, the, the mode of play for an ecological investigation is going to be a bit different from fighting between feudal houses. So I think you can have both, but you've got to, you've got to decide which one is at the front. Either you play a political game of securing resources through conquest and intrigue, where the origin of the spice is interesting, but really it's just colour, or you play a game where your characters are invested in the ecology and are not involved directly in the fighting. You know, in the latter case, you've got to think about what the goal of the party is. And it could be information gathering. It could be terraforming. I really like the idea of a game where your goal is scientific. You know, it's to understand the world as a precursor to terraforming. But obviously that's going to be a self-contained campaign with a defined end state. Still, I'm, I think you could have plenty of fun with the scientists trying to decide on the best course of action whilst serving their masters, overcoming violent opposition, that kind of thing. Um, last point about the ecology. Uh, the sandworms, in my view, are basically filling the role of dragons in genre fantasy. You know, they're, they're mythical creatures or gods from which spring a very precious and poorly understood resource. That's the source of magical power. And their screen presence is a huge part of the films, obviously. Um, and a big part of Fremen life is how they survive alongside the worms, how they revere them, but also the awareness of how dangerous they are. And it made me think that D&D would be a very different game if it was about the Guild of Sorcerers steering civilization and an economy based around magic dragon poo. Okay, speaking of dragon poo, um, last topic is interstellar travel. Uh, mainly because it's a mainstay of games like Traveller and, um, you know, games where they, you, you have a ship and therefore your ability to control your own destiny is, is in your hands. Because in the Dune universe, you don't. Uh, at any point, the guild can choose to strand anyone who steps out of line. You know, this is a very real threat. It's actually used at the end of the book for any noble houses that land on Arrakis without being first given permission. Um... It is a really effective way of limiting a sandbox that is otherwise on a planetary scale so that you can you can force people to stay in certain locations or only permit them certain avenues of travel. It did make me wonder what Traveller would be like if the only way of getting around was by um, high, medium or low passage. You, know, you, you couldn't have your own ship. 
um, because if you can't, if you need a guild hayline or two uh, to get get anywhere, it's as good as them owning your own ship. Uh, and one of the concerns I, I have about effectively running um, science fiction games is that everything is too vast. But if you can limit the limit the area to a sort of topological map, I think that um, that would that's quite effective. And and the fact that the guild has all this economic power that means they can they can command around the emperor that is um, makes them one of the more interesting factions in the game as well as the fact that they they are themselves voluntary transhumans they have transformed themselves to become navigators okay time is moving on so let's move on to media and i'm going to cover both the three different adaptations and also the rpgs or, or what i know of them so films first and um, there have been three screen adaptations of dune as far as i know not including jodorowsky's failed attempt uh, and I haven't seen the documentary, so I can't comment. But chronologically, we have Lynch's version from 1984, then the sci-fi TV series from 2000, which also has a sequel series, uh, Children of Dune, that covers the second and third books, and then Villeneuve's 2021 film. So starting with Lynch, um, David Lynch's film has a special place in my heart, partly because I'm a fan of David Lynch and partly due to me seeing that version before I'd even read the books. And this was a new kind of space opera for me. Um, before it was Star Wars, Star Trek, and Blake Seven. That's what that's what I had, and and a bit of Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica. But Dune was was so different. It was so much about the Rococo architecture and the fashions and the customs and the screen presence. And for that alone, I love it for showing a different kind of science fiction to me. You know, the the spaceships and the tech and the weapons and the uniforms are all anachronistic. They're all strange. They're not shiny. Um, I always felt that the style of tech felt very consistent within itself. So the aesthetics still work for me when other SF can look dated thanks to the tech on display. You know, later when I'd read the books, I, I found about, out about the butler and jihad and the tech approach made sense. Um, but... I do also like the performances a lot, particularly Freddie Jones, who is my favourite, Thufir Howard. Uh, Francesca Annis is awesome as Jessica. Uh, Carl McLaughlin, he, he's too old to be Paul, but he's still really great. Um, and I also like Brad Dourif as Piter as well. Uh, in fact, I'll say that Lynch's Dune has the best Mentats. And the Baron's a bit crap. You know, he's, he's, he's a great grotesque monster, but that's about it. Raban is rubbish and Sting as Fade Routher is all right in his winged rubber underpants. But there is this idea that somewhere there's a supercut of Lynch's Dune, which all makes sense and is five hours long or something. Um, but according to an interview featurette with Raffaella De Laurentiis, which is on the Arrow release of Dune, um, that collects a lot of the deleted scenes together, there's no such thing. There's no such cut. It is still that much of a mess. Um, I actually think it hangs together better than some people give it credit for, you know, but the problem is still that once Jessica and Paul get to the desert, it all seems a bit rushed, and that is the point where it kind of falls apart. But in the interview with Raffaella De Laurentiis, um, there's a really interesting comment she made, which is about how Lynch rewrote the scene where Paul takes the water of life in the desert and is attended by several sandworms, which is not canonical. 
that scene does narrative duty for about six or seven deleted scenes. Uh, it is a lot packed into that as well. Um, and having seen some of the deleted scenes, their omission is frankly justified. They, they wouldn't have made the film better. Some of them are downright dull. Um, but the only one that I'm really interested in is uh, Jessica talking with the shout-out mapes. The last comment on the Lynch version, I guess, is this is the only version I think that has any voiceovers. Uh, and as I said before, I really think the internal monologues of the characters add something. Uh, they're, they're important. So then on to the June TV miniseries. Uh, you know, it's it was a product of the early noughties with typical CGI, uh, less Rococo furnishings, more gleaming white spaceship corridors. Um it, it does it does look a bit more the way I would expect it to once they get to Arrakis. Um, but there's there's this preponderance of, of ridiculous headgear, particularly amongst the Bene Gesserit. Um, and there are also there are occasional glitches. I, I did note that you know there's they must have um, made everyone's eyes blue in post. And uh, there is a point with the Fremen Reverend Mother. Uh, and Jessica, and the Fremen's blue eyes, which, you know, that they're obviously added in post because they just vanish mid-scene, um, and it happens more than once. Um, the Fremen, by the way, their costumes, their clothes, um, the still suits, look a lot more like the uh, the iconic Bruce Pennington covers with, you know, jubber cloaks and full face masks. Um and it's also very faithful to the original plot. There are some omissions and changes. Um, there's no Count Fenring, but there is, for example, Fade's attempt on the Baron's life using a concealed poison needle embedded in a slave's thigh. So it, it does actually, it, it is the closest to the plot. Um, and there's a strong focus on the politics. The Emperor also makes an early appearance. Uh, regular parts of the narrative are switching back to the uh, Emperor in-house Carino, and in particular focusing on the actions of Princess Erlen, who actually has agency in this version. And it's about, it's three one and a half hour episodes, which is probably comparable to the Lynch footage and the, you know, the two part new film. Uh, but the pacing is not nearly as good. There are lots of flat spots, I think. Good use of colors though in the Fremen Setch and the, the Harkonnen homeworld as well. Um, you remember the Lynch version and also the uh, Villeneuve version that's like very dark and oppressive. Uh, in, in this one, it's like brightly painted, all, all shades of red and, and very striking. Uh, of the actors, um, the one that stands out is Ian McNeese as the Baron, uh, the best Baron in my opinion. Um, and uh, on a final note, Graham Ravel did the soundtrack uh, for this one and some of the refrains sound very much like the Toto score for the Lynch movie. So then finally uh, just quickly talk about June 2021. Um, you know Denis Villeneuve's version is a brilliant movie. Uh, the score is really well integrated in the film. It's brilliant to look at. The vehicles look good. The night fights are, are just fantastic. Everyone's really well cast. Definitely the most accurate version of Paul. Uh, Josh Brolin owns Gurney Halleck. Um, I have to say that the way Stellan Skarsgård emulates Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now and is even more lacking in subtlety than Lynch's Baron is a bit rubbish. 
Um, and I also think that both Mentats are, that's Pyta and Thufir, are wasted. And there's no Fade Rather. I am still disappointed that there's been no screen representation of Thufir's suspicions and the standoff with Jessica. Um, also, none of these versions feature the early scene with Dr. Yui giving a tiny copy of the Orange Catholic Bible to Paul, although that's less consequential. But even that provides a crucial reference to how thinking machines are forbidden that's just absent from the film. So, in summary, um, both the Lynch and Villeneuve films are wonderful for the aesthetic and very different, and the TV series is worth watching as well. Um, I prefer the Lynch for Freddie Jones as Thufir and Dean Stockwell as Yui. Uh, all of the Dukes are great performances. Um, much as I like Karl McLaughlin, Timothy Chalamet is way better cast. Uh, the best Baron is Ian McNeese from the TV series. Josh Brolin is the best Gurney and Jason Momoa is the best Duncan Idaho. The worst Gurney Halleck, by the way, is uh, P.J. Moriarty from the TV series. Uh, he previously played Hatchet Harry in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, where he um, beats someone to death with a rubber dildo. And it kind of brings the same level of nuance to this version. Finally, all the Jessicas are great. Take your pick. They're great across the board, including uh, the different Jessica in the sequel TV series. So there are four Jessicas. They all lend a different attitude to the character. Um, yeah, top marks. All right, I'm just going to quickly talk about RPGs now uh, as to wrap things up. There are three RPGs I'm aware of, the first being Chronicles of the Imperium by Last Unicorn Games, which was bought up by Wizards of the Coast, but it never made it to a D20 version. There is, though, a fan D20 version called Dune A Dream of Rain, which does use the open game license, but it's a non-commercial product with this telling uh, passage in the, in the front, which says, heading, other people's trademarks and copyrights. In this document, we use the names of a lot of other... In this document, we use the names of a lot of other games and game companies. We're not trying to claim any of their copyrighted or trademark materials as our own or make any money from the production or distribution of this document. We thank them, one and all in advance here, for not suing our broke asses. Now, it does what you'd expect a lot of D20 games from that era to do. That's 2004. Uh, and this starts with a, a very high level of overview of the canon, and then it dies straight into classes, skills, weapons, combat, faction, bad guys with stat blocks. You know, weirding or the Prana Bindu training is mostly handled through feats, I think, rather than as spells, and the chapter is actually quite short. It's clear that this is a product of someone's passion, but it also is what it is, and it's a clunky D20 game. And then there's the Modifius version, which is very much like other Modifius 2D20 products. Now, I don't own it, but from the kickstart, it looks like it's at the looser end of the system, like Dishonored, in which case it's probably very workable. All of these RPGs should be treated, I think, in the same way as Call of Cthulhu, in that it's role-playing in the worlds of Frank Herbert rather than emulating the Dune novels. And to be honest, the problem I have with all of these is that adaptations like this are always going to have this massive hump to get over in terms of the canon which does feel like it's going to get in the way simply due to the weight of the fandom i've also heard opined by the gaming twitterati that whilst the new 2d20 dune may be good coriolis may be a better game 
And certainly I'd, I'd rather play a game with the attitude of Dune than try to play in the world of Dune long term. I, I did play a, a one shot of Dune 40k, which was, you know, a mashup of Dune and Warhammer 40k. And that was a lot of fun, but just from one off, I think. Um, a couple of other games that I'm aware of, but I, I don't have experience of, like Fading Suns and Baroque Space Opera. They sound great. Um, but to be honest, I'd be inclined to use something like Traveller or Stars Without Number. You know, the latter in particular has a lot less baggage. And all of the Synomine games have really neat approaches to factions and location tags. There's a lot of useful mechanics to do a political duty as well as the sort of action-y stuff. Anyway, that's the end of this episode, but not the end of my treatment of Dune because I am going to talk about the sequels. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you hear, you can give me a five-star review on iTunes. You can like, share and subscribe, tell all your friends. And if you're inclined to, you can support me on Patreon. But I do appreciate you listening all the same. Music, as always, is by Chris Zabreski. Find out more at chrissabreski.com. Until next time, bye!